end of our series called The Story. And we started this way back at the beginning of January, and we've made it to the end. Um, and, and, and we get to land in, in the last book uh, in Scripture, too, called Revelation. And so I know everyone's really excited about that. But I, 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 wanna, I want us just to think for a moment just how far we've come as we've gone through the entire Bible uh, chronologically. Um, we started at the beginning of Genesis. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And I want to read to you the very last words that you will find at the end of your Bible. And the grace of the Lord will be with us all. It's how we begin and it's how we end. There's actually a, a, a pretty kind of formal way of studying the Bible that, that if you take a letter or if you take a, a, a section of Scripture or if you take even like the New Testament, the Old Testament, or you take the entire Bible and you just fold it in half and you see where the beginning of it meets the end of it, that's generally what that portion is about. And so if we do that with the Bible, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and you keep on reading, and he's walking with his people that he created, he is with his people, and you folded that over and you put that book in with the last book in, God is with his people again. And so we can see what the actual upper story is when we do this. You can do this within, if you're in my class on Sunday morning, you get tired of me saying this. You can do this with any book. You can do this with any section of scripture. Um, and you go, okay, what's Paul actually saying here? You fold that over. You see what he says at the beginning. You see what he says at the end. And, and that's what he's saying. That's what he's talking about. The entire purpose of the scripture is for God to demonstrate how he is with his people. And where that folds over is how his people, we've done such a, uh, a, 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 a really hard job of leaving him. <laughs> and so he had to do something to redeem us. This is why we keep using that word redemption. Every upper story, part of the upper story that we have read throughout this entire series has been about God redeeming his people. And why does he redeem his people? Because he wants to be with them. It has been one consistent message that we have seen throughout the entire uh, journey through the story. So we land in Revelation. So this is kind of how it worked. We kind of got together and said, all right, who's going to be preaching on what and all these things like this? And we said, all right, the last one's called The End of Time. Who wants to preach Revelation? All of our pastors took a step back, and I didn't know they were going to do that. And so I started looking around going, well, okay, here we go. Actually, it didn't happen that way at all. But it kind of felt like that a little bit because Revelation, I mean, there was a poll that was sent out saying, hey, when, when you think of the book of Revelation, what, what words come to mind? And here's some of the words that were used. Um, many people said the word intimidating. Many people said the word confusing. Some people even use, and these are Christian people, even use the word a little terrifying. And I don't know if that's you guys. I don't know if that's how you feel when you, when you hear the, the, the word revelation, when you hear this book. Do you get intimidated by it? Do you get confused by it? Do you feel a little scared by it? Because that was never the intent of the book. It was never the intent of the book. I, I know that many of you, I know this because many of you send, send me emails and say, hey, have you heard what this guy said about this? Have you heard what this guy said about this? In our culture, we do not have a shortage of people who are trying to unlock the secrets of Revelation. That would be a really weird book to be called Revelation. Like, if there were secrets about it, 
we can't call it revelation. <laughs> but my fear is that more of us know what people say about revelation than what revelation actually says about us. And so my question to you is, have you actually read the book? Or have you just listened to what people said? Or have you gone to the fiction section of any bookstore and picked up people's interpretation of what this might look like or what it could end up looking like? And I, I, I fear this because I think most of us, when we even think of the book Revelation, the driving question that comes to us is like, when is this all going to happen? When is this all going to happen? That, that, sort of, that tends to be what, what moves us through this, and it creates excellent fiction work, and it creates really entertaining radio shows, and it creates really weird and strange and, and, and meaning, sometimes meaningful, but, but, but really strange dialogue that we have with one another. And we love to see things going on around us and say, here we go, here we go, here we go, here we go. And I want to caution you on that. Because that's never the drive through this book, through this letter. Uh, as a matter of fact, if you were to read this from the first chapter to the 22nd chapter, and, and you were to look at this, and if your question was when, you're actually going to see about this much of it talk about future events. And you're going to see a whole big chunk of it talking about, hey, this is what's going on with the church right now. And it covers this age from when Jesus showed up in this virgin birth that we read about for the Christmas story to the time when he's going to come again. And very little of it is future stuff, but we know he's coming back. This is why we are able to call this the end of time. And the whole book is a letter written to the church saying, I want to encourage you to be ready for that little bit right there. And we're going to see some of that uh, play out here in just a second. So as we look at the book of Revelation, I want to encourage you to go read this on your own. I don't want your driving question to be when. I want you to have better questions than that. I want you to ask who. When you read this, I want you to ask how or in what way. Who are you as a church is a great question to ask as you're reading this letter. Who am I calling? Who is Jesus calling you to be? Who holds all things together, even if it feels like they're coming apart at the seams? And how will we choose to live when the pressure is on and the stakes are high? Great questions to be asking as we read this letter. See, the reason we want Revelation to be a book of mysterious prediction, I think, is because I think it's actually easier to speculate than it is for us to surrender. And this book, this letter, calls for us to surrender because it's an unpacking of the gospel. Listen to John's kind of posture he has when he starts encountering the things that are going to make up this book. It's in, in John, or excuse me, in Revelation chapter 1. In John's writing, he says, When I saw him, I fell at his feet, though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death, of death in Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are, and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the messengers of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches themselves. So we'll talk about that here in just a second, but we need to understand something with John here. 
John has been put on this really tiny island in prison because of his faith that he's professed. He's on this island called Patmos. And while he's in prison there, and, and, and many think that he's by himself in prison there, he receives this vision from God, this one singular revelation from God. This is why it's the book of Revelation and not the book of Revelations, okay? If you pluralize that, you've actually talked about something else. But he gets this one vision from him. And, and, and this vision starts with, with Jesus showing up, and he's got these seven stars, and we already, we're already told here that, that they're the messengers of, of the church. Your, your version might say the angels of the church. It's the same word. And, and he says he's, got, he's walking amongst these lampstands, and he said there's seven of them. Well, we're told in that part that the, the lampstands are the church. And, and, and it's seven letters, the very next chapter, we're going to jump into that here in a second, is, is he writes seven different letters, seven different introductions to, to these seven churches. And it's all put together like this because we're supposed to read this in whole. And so when we see this, we need to think of not just these individual churches, but we need to think of the church universal. And so this letter we're reading isn't just for these churches in these towns, but congregations and, and cities and these secret meetings that are going on underground and then places like South Rock Christian Church can read this and go, okay, this is for us too. And so I think it's important that we understand this in whole. He writes to seven, these seven churches so that he can communicate to all the church. He writes to a place called Laodicea. He tells them, man, you guys aren't even hot or cold. You're lukewarm. And that's problematic. And what I want you to do instead is I want you to start relying on the Lord. He, he writes to a really tiny congregation in Philadelphia. This is Philadelphia at the you know, first century, not Philadelphia like we know Philadelphia. It's a really tiny church. And he says, I know that you feel like you're small and that you feel like you're insignificant. But I want to encourage you to continue to endure in some hard things. He writes to a place called Sardis. And he says, man, I'm well aware of your hypocrisy. I know what you guys do on Sunday morning, and then I know who you are on Monday afternoon. And he says, because of that, I'm calling you to wake up. Wake up. And that's a message for the church, the, the church universal. He writes to a place called Thyatira. And he says, I'm witnessing you. I'm paying attention to your seduction to sexual sin. And instead of you know, jumping in on that, I want you now to start holding fast to the one true teaching that you held fast to originally. He writes to a place called Pergamum, and he says, man, Pergamum, I see your temptation with idolatry. I'm calling you right now to repent. He writes to a place called Smyrna, and he says, I'm witnessing your persecution. I know how hard it's been for you. I want to write to you. I want to tell you and encourage you Endure this because it's only going to last for a little while. There is an end coming to that persecution. Well, then he writes to a place that we are more familiar with. And this is kind of where I want to land this morning so that we understand what's happening in this, in this end of times here. He writes to a place called Ephesus. And I think this is where we can start to see and discover our story intersecting with this letter right here. He writes to a place called Ephesus. We're in Revelation chapter 2. And this is what we read in the first three verses. He says, To the angel, or to the messenger of the church in Ephesus, write the words of him who hold the seven stars in his right hand, who walk among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works. 
your toil and your patient endurance and how you cannot bear with those who are evil but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. I know that you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake and you have not grown weary. Man, what an encouraging thing for this church to hear these words from Jesus. See, we know some things about this church. We know some things about Ephesus. Ephesus is really kind of a famous place. Uh, last week, Rick Allspaugh uh, was uh, giving us a message from 2 Timothy. Timothy, at that time, was pastoring at the church in Ephesus. And so we read letters like 1 and 2 Timothy. We actually have an entire epistle read, uh, written to the church in Ephesus. Um, and because this is part of what, uh, what was on Paul's missionary journeys where he founded this church. He was close to the elders and to the leaders of this church. He wept with them when he knew he wasn't going to be able to re revisit them. He has a very deep and personal connection with them. It's a privileged church. They've been greatly blessed. And in this, we see that Christ speaks to their leaders. He speaks to the church. I mean, think about that for a moment. Jesus is speaking to that congregation. You know, we even have evidence that, that John, the author of the book of Revelation, even served in a pastorly role in Ephesus. Many believe that's actually where he was arrested at and then sent to this island in Patmos. But Christ speaks to the leaders and walks among the churches. And even though Christ is exalted in heaven, he doesn't do his work remotely. He is present. Think on that. He's present. Be in awe of Jesus walking amongst his church. Just as though he walked in the Garden of Eden, he now walks in this garden that he calls his church. He's actively engaged, and he knows what's going on. But he also gives a warning to this church. If you keep reading in this, he gives a warning to to this church in Ephesus, and I think it's worth our time to pay attention to this warning as well. In verse 4, he says, But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. So, he says, Ephesus Christian Church, this wildly popular congregation that is serving like no other, they're discerning like no other. They're persevering like no other. I know all these great things you're doing. And then we take this like dramatic turn in verse 4. I have this against you. I have this against you. How are we to understand this? I've actually heard messages that, that go like this. Because of this verse, we, we know that there's good and bad in all churches and there's always room for improvement, so we need to pay attention for room for improvement. i got a problem interpreting this passage this way. I would challenge you, don't soften the blow of what Jesus just said to this church. This isn't just a message for them to tinker what's going on. They're in danger of having their lampstand removed. Do you understand the heaviness of this? This church that's doing all these amazing things are in the very danger of not even being considered a church by Jesus. The bride is in danger of losing the groom. And Jesus' statement warns us that healthy-looking churches can actually be on the verge of losing their light. 
This is a big wake-up call to you and I. This is a massive wake-up call to you and I. Ephesus Christian Church here, they're doing very well in their planning and their strategy meetings. Maybe they've got like 80% of their, their congregation serving. Maybe they're, they're retaining like 90% of their volunteers. We, we, people volunteering in the different ministries and the different things that are going on. They're like, man, I, I want to keep doing this. I want to keep coming back for this. It's possible that Ephesus Christian Church, man, maybe they're seeing baptisms happen every single week. Every single week they get to celebrate someone getting dunked and, 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 and maybe coming to Jesus for the first time and getting excited to be a part of, of the things going on in this community. All the people are busy. They're engaged. They're committed to their congregation, and they're active. They're serving. They're full of energy. Their doctrine is even sound. Bible studies are everywhere. And they've been through some difficult things, as we read in those first three verses. But their staff is stable. Their elders are, are maybe they have had to make some tough decisions, but, but they're in unison as they do that. And, and they've probably got some longevity of some of their members. Some of their members have probably been there since the founding of the church. But Jesus says, I know all of that. I'm well aware of all of that, but I have this against you. Makes me wonder, what, what is it that's so destructive in this congregation? What is it that's so cancerous or, or, or so corrosive that the church that is doing so well can be in so much danger of losing their light? Well, he brings a charge against them in that verse. He says, I hold this against you. You've abandoned your first love. You've abandoned the love that you had at first. See, the charge here is their unfaithfulness is being masked by activity. What's this mean? Well, some have said that this means that they're no longer a loving church. Well, that's problematic. <laughs> that's problematic. I don't think that's what first love means. See, a first love is not necessarily just a chronological thing, but it's one of importance and priority. So a first love would be a, a, a love for the Lord. That a love for God happens before a love for one another. That's what we read in all the rest of the scriptures. Some have said, well, this means that you've, you've lost your earliest love. And so this is a message that goes like this. Remember the excitement you had when you first became a Christian. Remember the excitement you had when you walked into that baptistry and walked out. I mean, it's time for you to find that enthusiasm again. Well, that's not how love works, is it? I mean, love is supposed to deepen over time. It's supposed to mature. I, I, I don't know a lot about marriage, but I can tell you that my wife, if I loved her the same way, now that I did when we first got married, we'd be in some trouble. We'd have some problems. The earliest love is rarely the best love. Love doesn't work backwards. It actually grows. Jesus does not say you've lost your earliest love, but you've forsaken your first love. You see, he says you've forsaken Christ. You've forsaken me. You haven't put me as the priority. Your ministry is thriving. Your statement of faith is sound. Your commitment to hard work is exemplary. But you are a serving, discerning, and persevering church. But you are no longer a Christ-centered church. And unless you recenter your ministry on me, the living Christ says, the light will go out. Can you picture this kind of church? Can you picture it? Bustling with life and energy. Multiple Bible studies. Many classes. Several groups, 
one that seems to overcome really hard experiences, but they persevere. Can you picture it? Do you know a church that's like this? In Ephesians, and there was a church that was truly an amazing community. If you ever read the book of, Ephesus, or, uh, the book of Ephesians that Paul writes, I mean, he talks about, I mean, you guys, you didn't learn Jesus this way. You've, you've taken off the old self, and you've put on the new self, and you're living like this. That's what the entire book of, of Ephesians is about. Is it possible then to serve with great energy and to no longer be about Christ? It's a very real question. Has this happened to you? Has it happened to you? Is your faith very much like a weary marriage? Where conversation that was once a joining of hearts diminishes to the level of who's taking the van to pick up the kids. Affection getting crowded out. And one day you say to your spouse, I committed my life to being with you. And now I hardly see you. And when I do, your mind is somewhere else. Can you picture this kind of church? What do we do about this? Well, thankfully, Jesus gives us that answer in the very next verse. He says, remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent you hear the message? Do you hear the message? He gives us three operative words right there. He says, remember, man, think of where you were and what you were doing when there was an affection and an intense love for Christ. Maybe it's when you were a part of that group, a part of that study, a part of a smaller community that was challenging each other and holding each other accountable, and you sort of got too busy for that. Maybe it's when you were volunteering for a position, you're like, man, I, I'm relying solely on Christ to make sure I do this ministry well. Maybe it's when you were praying together with your spouse, with your family, with your brother, with your sister, with your friends. I don't know, but whatever it was that brought on a deep affection for Jesus and an intense love for him, remember that time. How do we measure that? I, I would challenge you don't compare yourself to someone else but but take your life take your faith journey and compare it to the word to the things we've discovered over the last 31 weeks compare it to that that measuring stick that ruler that tape measure peter says that though you have not seen him you love him and even though you do not see him now you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy remember that Maybe you're thinking, I've often come to church, I even serve, but I've never loved Jesus like that. Well, if that's you, I think God's brought that to you right now. I, I, I think it's your calling right now to delight in that revelation and know that God's not done with you yet. And come back to that. He also says repent. He actually says it twice. He says repent. Ask yourself, is my heart cold? Am I numb? Am I just not feeling God? And if that's you, confess that. Lord, my love for you is so weak, I've lost sight of you. And if the Holy Spirit is stirring this in you, and don't beat yourself up over it, move into that stirring. Lean into that. And thank God that he is moving in you like that. One minister from centuries ago said that the heart is, a, is hard only when it does not know it is hard. A man is hardened only when he does not know he is hardened. 
when we are concerned about our coldness, it is because of the yearning that God has put in there. And pay attention to that. And then finally, he says, return. That's actually not said, but it's implied. You know, the first thing that any Christian does is embrace Jesus. The first thing that any church is, is an affection for Jesus Christ. We believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and our Lord and Savior. And he's the lover of our souls. And he is the first and the last of anything that we do as a church. You want revival? Man, come back to that. Come back to that. The call is to come back to Jesus. Is it possible that we are masking our unfaithfulness with activity? Is it possible? That's what this entire letter called Revelation is about. It's a call to remember. It's a call to repent. It's a call to return. That's how we prioritize Christ. It's how we keep our first love. It's how the church retains her lampstand. But one really big question is why should we do that to begin with? And I think it's very simple. Because the most important part of Revelation and the most important part of this entire journey that we've called the story, better than when or what or how, is that we keep our first love of Jesus Christ. Because from the beginning, he has kept us. Our Father wants to be with us. There is nothing greater than delighting in his presence. And honestly, that's what heaven really is. Allspaul asked us a question last week that, that said what, what we think of when we think of heaven. If we do not think of Jesus Christ first as that priority, it's really not heaven. It's really not it. I want to read. He tells us why at the very end of this letter. In, in, in Revelation 21, I want to read some of 21. I want to read some of 22 to you and just let his words, just let those sink in. He says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard in a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these, are the wor these, are, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give them the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. Then 22, a little bit later on, he says, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree 
were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. And he said to me, these words are trustworthy and true, and the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. Isn't that incredible? Isn't that incredible? And if he told them then, I am coming soon, how much closer are we now? So are you ready? Are you ready? Are you ready to take off the mask of activity so that we can be faithful to him who has been faithful to us? That's the decision this morning. If you want help in that, we've got some people that are going to be at our decision points. Just make your way over there, and they would love to pray with you about that. If it's time for you to remember return or to remember repent and return, and let them help you out with that. Would you stand as we sing? If you've got a decision to make, make your way over to those doors.